This Torah 101 podcast is dedicated in loving memory and for the merit of the elevation of the soul of Mansur Faridnia ben Ahajan. May his soul be elevated in heaven. If you'd like to dedicate a Torah 101 podcast, or if you want to reach out with any questions or comments or any sort of feedback, we deeply appreciate it. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. In the previous episode, we talked about the indications of the Messianic era. Of course, we're not prophets, and we don't play one on the podcast, but nevertheless, we're trying to understand to the best of our ability, what our sages are trying to convey to us when they offer descriptors of features, of elements, of characteristics that are indications of the messianic era and when that may be imminent or pending. Now it's time to move on to the next element, the next half of this discussion, namely the indications of King Messiah himself. Regarding Messiah himself, we are also given some indicators. This will complement some of what we discussed previously in this series about Messiah and the persona of Messiah. Of course, we've already talked about this, the descriptions of Messiah The Talmud says that he's a leper sitting on the outskirts of Rome, wrapping and unwrapping his bandages one at a time. And we talked about the superlative greatness, the character profile of, of Messiah. He's a prophet, almost like Moshe. He's wise even beyond Solomon. He's more elevated than the angels and the Abraham will have to deal and negotiate with all the kings, not just with Pharaoh. He's a pauper riding on a donkey. That is what... Messiah is described as. And it should just tell us that there are three great people who ride the same donkey. And these are, of course, Abraham, Moshe, and Messiah. And we know that there are three eras of history. There's the era of desolation and of Torah and of Messiah. 2,000 years, 2,000 years, and 2,000 years. And the three paramount figures of these three epochs of history are Abraham, Moshe, and Messiah. And they all have this quality of riding a donkey. Now, what does this mean? So the sources offer a variety of explanations. And of course, these are not mutually exclusive, but these two are indicators of Messiah himself. Rashi tells us that riding a donkey is a symbol of Humility. Messiah will be humble, will be unpretentious. We're also told that riding a donkey, having the reins to the donkey, is symbolic of Messiah's complete mastery over his innate physicality. There's going to be separation of rider and animal. For most of us, for all of us, our physicality and our spirituality are commingled. Abraham, Moshe, Messiah, these three pivotal transformational figures, they ride the donkey. They are in complete control of their physicality. Other sources tell us that this symbolizes the domination of other nations. 
Ishmael, we're told, is compared to a donkey. And if Messiah is riding the donkey, it means that he has control of the donkey. Alternatively, we know that the, the one tribe that is most associated with immersive Torah study is the tribe of Issachar, and he's compared to in the blessings of Jacob at the end of his life in Genesis chapter 49, he's compared to a, a donkey that's laden with Torah, carrying voluminous Torah. And Messiah, we're told, will come in the merit of Torah. So these are other indications about the individual Messiah. We also learned that Messiah will be able to smell and judge. He's going to be able to sniff things with great prophetic accuracy. And we also learned that this is not necessarily something supernatural. This is the full manifestation of the power, the sheer power of the human soul and this very lofty soul without any inhibitions or restrictions. Messiah, we're told, and again, it's hard for us to actually know what this means or how to identify it. But Messiah, we're told, the soul of Messiah is the soul of Adam or Adam and David and Messiah is one soul. And that's uh, Adam, David, and Mashiach is the first letter of each of those three names is Adam. And that's why Adam donated 70 years of his life to, to David because David is Messiah. And Adam is also Messiah, whatever that means. Other sources attribute the soul of Messiah to Moshe. And again, we don't know what anything here means, but we are told about this incredible soul that Messiah is going to possess. Now, these ideas we've talked about in the past, but I want to introduce some more ideas, some more elements, some more indicators that will help us understand more about who Messiah actually is himself and what are the messianic indicators. The Midrash tells us that although Messiah comes from the Davidic line, which is the tribe of Judah, that's only from his father's side. From his mother's side, Messiah comes from the tribe of Dan. Now for us, this means that the characteristics of Dan, as well as the characteristics of Judah, are going to be manifested in Messiah. So we typically think of Messiah as a, as a king, and Judah's the king, David's the king, and Solomon's the king, and that's Messiah. But we're also told that Dan is, is the other half, so to speak, of this, of this individual. Now, in his blessing to his sons, chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob revealed to them their characteristics and their destiny. So, of course, Judah was about the monarchy and hinted to David and to Solomon and to Messiah. But then in chapter 49, verses, I think, 16, 17, 18, Jacob addresses Dan. And he compares Dan to a snake. Dan will be a snake upon the way, a viper upon the path. And Dan is going to bite, or this, this snake is going to bite the heels 
heels. That gets our attention. The heels of the horse. And the rider of the horse falls off backwards. Dan is compared in the blessing of Jacob to a snake that bites the heel of the horse and causes the horse to rear up and to chuck the rider off of it. Rashi tells us that this reveals that Dan is able to kill the rider without touching the rider. Typically, you know, if you want to kill something, you have to have some sort of point of contact with that thing. Dan's like the snake. He's able to impact the rider without ever touching it. Now Rashi tells us that this is a prophecy about Samson. Samson killed the enemies of Israel without touching them. He just pushed the pillars of the building and that collapsed the whole building. But if Messiah has, from his mother's side, the elements of Dan, this may be another indicator of Messiah himself. And that is that the impact that he's going to have may be indirect. The sources maintain that unlike David, Messiah will not need weapons to gain the fealty, the loyalty of others. Messiah will not need to use force to gain acceptance. His impact will be indirect going to ripple throughout the world without necessarily having a touch point, a physical touch point. There's something about Dan that's manifested in Messiah, just as the viper indirectly affects the rider of the horse, Messiah will indirectly affect the whole world. There is a cool gematria, if you're into gematrias. The Hebrew word for for snake is nachash. And that's precisely the gematria of Mashiach. There's another part of the association with Dan that's relevant to Messiah. We know that Dan had only one son, a boy named Chushim who was deaf. And the Midrash tells us that Chushim was actually the one who killed Asaf. He actually beheaded Asaf, decapitated him. We know the story. Jacob died in Egypt, and he was embalmed in Egypt, and then Joseph got permission from Pharaoh to bring him back to the land of Israel to bury him in the cave of the patriarchs. This is the very end of Genesis. The Midrash tells us that when they got to Hebron, to Hebron, and they went to inter Jacob in the cave of the patriarchs, Asaph was there, and he didn't allow the funeral procession to proceed. And they said, well, you sold your rights. There's only one barrel spot. And Asaph claimed it for himself. And he says, well, Jacob buried Leah here. The last one is mine. 
But they said, no, you, you sold it. When, when Jacob went down to Egypt, he made a transaction with Esau. He made a big pile of all the gold and all the possessions that he acquired outside the land of Israel. And he exchanged it with Esau for Esau's portion, burial portion, in the cave of the patriarchs. But then Esau says, well, where is the documentation? Show me the proof. And they said, oh no, we forgot the contract in Egypt. So they sent Naphtali to go hustle back to Egypt to go retrieve that contract. Meanwhile, I was waiting around and it's a terrible disgrace to Jacob that he's not being allowed to be buried. Now, Hushim is deaf, so he's not really following the proceedings, but he realizes that something is amiss here. So he communicates with everyone saying, well, what's going on? So they point him, well, this guy, Asaph, he is preventing the burial from happening. Hushim gets enraged. And there are different versions of what happened. Either he bludgeoned Asaph to death or he beheaded Asaph and Asaph's head rolled into the cave. And with Asaph eliminated, they were able to bury Jacob. And Asaph's head remained buried there, and the rest of his body was buried elsewhere. Now, if Dan only had one son, and the mother of Messiah comes from Dan, that means that Messiah comes not only from Dan, but also from Hushim. Now, it is noteworthy, the Kabbalists point out, the word Hushim is spelled Ches Shin Yud Mem. If you scramble those letters, you have Mem Shin Yud Ches. That's Messiah. So not only is Hushim the same gematria as Messiah, it's the same letters. And just as Hushim smote Esav, as we mentioned, the last frontier, the last battle before Messiah is the battle on Mount Seir against Esav. The final grabbing of the heel. And Dan and Hushim and Messiah, part of this whole story is the coming out of nowhere to destroy Esau and to clutch his heel and to overtake him. Now, perhaps there's another wrinkle to this. Hushim is a great hero for what he did. He restored the honor of, of Jacob. But why was Hushim the only one who ended Jacob's disgrace and killed Esau? How come no one else did that? What about the rest of the family? Why did no one else stand up for the honor of Jacob? Yeah, Judah there. Joseph there, lots of people there. Why did only Hushim take the necessary steps? So there are many answers to this question. But one of them, I think, is germane to our subject. Esau didn't come there alone. When he met Jacob, he had 400 men, warriors. He knew that if he were to block 
the burial of Jacob, that would not be taken kindly by Jacob's descendants. So he had guards, and they were armed to the teeth, and they were protecting Asaph. They expected trouble, and they prepared accordingly. There was only one person that they did not deem a threat. Chushim, he's deaf, he's out of it. That was not one of the people that the bodyguards of Asaph, so to speak, were worried about. So they had their eyes on Joseph and on Judah and everyone else. But Chushim, that kid who doesn't seem to have really anything going for him, that's not a threat. And perhaps this is another element of Messiah. Like Chushim, Messiah is unexpected, perhaps the least expected place that it were, it were to come from. So again, we don't know what this all means, but we are told that Messiah, part of Messiah, one of the qualities, one of the elements of Messiah, the individual, is the Dan, and by extension, the Chushim element, and that too is an indicator of Messiah. There's another larger theme about Messiah, and this is slightly related to what we just spoke about, and that is the inauspicious beginnings of Messiah. We're told a lot no pun intended, about the lineage, about the pedigree of Messiah. And it's not sterling. In fact, it's quite checkered. If you were to just study the the unions that serve as forbearers of Messiah, it's quite uncomfortably scandalous. So, of course, we have Lot and his daughters. After Sodom and Gomorrah is overturned, Lot and his two surviving daughters, they are under the impression that the world is over, and therefore they have no choice but to procreate with dad. And on successive nights, Lot is plied with alcohol, and he spends some time with his daughters. The elder daughter produces a son named Moab doesn't seem to be immediately relevant. This is the the forebearer of the Moabite nation. But we know that one Moabite is Ruth. And Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, and thus the progenitor of David, of Solomon, and of Messiah. So if we look back at the genealogy, at the ancestry of David, it does include... David and by extension Messiah, it does include that very, very unpleasant union. In addition, it also includes the other very unpleasant and quite scandalous union of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. We remember the story. Judah has three sons and the oldest one marries Tamar and then he dies and the second one says, okay, I'll marry her and then he dies. And Judah says, well, this, this woman is trouble. And he sends her back home and she really wants to have a baby from the family of Judah. So she impersonates a prostitute and seduces Judah. It's a crazy story. And Judah doesn't know who she is, gives her some 
identifying possessions of him. And she becomes pregnant and he thinks that she's guilty of a capital crime and at the last second she's spared and she gives birth to twins. One of them is Peretz. Peretz is the great-grandfather of Boaz, the great-grandfather of David and thus the great-grandfather, so to speak, of Messiah. Now, Ruth herself, the verse tells us that a Moabite is not allowed to intermarry amongst the Jewish people. A Moabite could convert, they could become Jewish, but they cannot intermarry. And therefore, if they do intermarry, then the the stain, so to speak, of being not allowed to join the congregation of God continues indefinitely. And thus, is Ruth even allowed to intermarry amongst the Jewish people? She was a convert, of course, but she was a Moabite convert. Now, the verse tells us that, well, lo yavo amoni umoavi. If you read it very, very precisely, it says a male Moabite. But that was only clarified in the times of Samuel. And thus, when, when Ruth and Boaz produced a child, there was a very credible argument that this child is not allowed to partake amongst the Jewish people. And thus, Oved's son, Jesse, Jesse's son, David, Solomon, and Messiah, there was at least a credible argument to be made that they're not legitimate. Oh, and then you have David and Bathsheba. And that's a scandalous story. All this is part of the genealogy, the pedigree of of Messiah. Now, David himself, this is not as well known. In very reputable sources, we're told that David's family thought that David was a bastard. And that's why when Samuel came to coronate one of the sons of Jesse, we don't know which one, make a list. There's seven of them. Well, none of them, are these are not the people. Well, okay, there's this eighth one, but we don't think he's your guy. No one thought he was a candidate. Why not? So the sources tell us. They all thought that David was not the son of Jesse. He was a bastard. How so? Jesse, for very good reasons, you have to trust me on this, for very good reasons, summoned his maidservant to be with him. This maidservant, according to the sources, is a reincarnation of Hagar, put that aside. She told Mrs. Jesse, i.e. the mother of Jesse's children, about Jesse's plan. Jesse had separated from his wife for many years, 
And now Jesse's telling his maidservant, I want to spend time with you. She tells Mrs. Jesse, his wife, and she impersonates the maidservant and swaps her garments out and sneaks in with Jesse and becomes pregnant. Now, Jesse has separated himself from his wife for years and she's pregnant. What does that mean? It means that, well, if he's not the dad, someone else got to be the dad. And thus, well, that child's a bastard. And Jesse tells his sons, we have a problem here. Mom is pregnant and I'm not the dad. And the sons wanted to kill her, certainly to kill the baby. And Jesse said, no, if you do that, then people will say that you're also not legitimate. So just let this baby be born and he'll be like your servant. We'll make him a shepherd. He's not really part of the family. That's why David is kind of like unwelcome. He's ostracized. Persona non grata amongst his family. And Samuel comes and says, okay, one of your sons, one of your sons is the next king. And Jesse lines up his seven known sons and says, no, it's none of these. They never think to bring David there because they think that Jesse's not the father. Only then does Samuel reveal what happened. Samuel the prophet says, no, <laughs> Jesse, David is your son. He's not a bastard. But everyone was under the impression that he was until that point. And again, this seems very, very, very sketchy. And this is, again, a pattern that we see again and again and again of all the known parents of antecedents of David and thus Messiah. We see this incredible pattern of scandal and controversy. The progenitors of Messiah don't seem to be standard, following protocol, being very orthodox in their behavior. This is not a coincidence. And there are a variety of reasons for this. One idea is that, Tama tells us, any great leader must have some skeletons in the closet, must carry a basket of rodents around their neck. Because to be a leader, you have to be humble. And you cannot lord over your constituents. And therefore, if you come from a very checkered past, you don't have this sterling background, you're actually better qualified to be a leader. That's one idea. Another idea, again, these are more elaborate subjects. Another another idea is that if you want to have a very, very, very holy soul, the ilk of, of David and Messiah and Solomon, etc., you must use a back door, so to speak. There are forces that are determined, that are created to try to prevent David Solomon, Messiah, from emerging. You got to use subterfuge. You got to hide this, so to speak, in the most scandalous way possible. That's the only way you could sneak it by, past, so to speak, the watchful eye of the Satan, whatever that means. 
Now, again, these are other subjects, but regardless, this gives us another clue about what sort of person, perhaps, Messiah will be. Not necessarily some cookie-cutter candidate. David, again, there are so many reasons that you would have argued David is not only not a candidate, but maybe the least qualified candidate, and that is David, Mashiach Hashem, the Messiah of God. He is descendant, maybe even someone who bears his soul, perhaps will likewise be very unexpected. My grandfather, a blessed memory, used to say that he thinks that Messiah could be a Balchuva, someone who grew up not Torah observant and came to it later in life and abandoned their previous life. Maybe they can teach the whole world about what it means to become close to Hashem. If you think about it, you know, we talked about these three giants who ride the donkey, who symbolize this, this triumvirate that symbolize these three epochs of history. We know two of them. We know Abraham and Moshe. Abraham, his father was the biggest wholesaler of idols in the world. He himself, we're told, worshipped idols as a child. And where did Moshe grow up? Of the whole nation, you would point at Moshe and say he's the least likely candidate to be the leader of the Jewish people. He grew up with Pharaoh as his dad? He's going to save us from Pharaoh? If that's the pattern with those first two of this triumvirate, you can perhaps at least expect or understand this other idea that Messiah perhaps may come from very surprising, very unexpected, very inauspicious origins. Now we're told that every generation has a potential Messiah. If Messiah can come any day, that means that there is someone any day that would qualify. I don't imagine he's still sitting at the outskirts of Rome. But that, that that candidate would be quite unexpected, you would imagine. A leper on the outskirts of Rome? Where that person would be today, of course, we don't know. But interestingly, the Rambam tells us, and this is more in line with that previous idea, that Messiah will be unknown until he reveals himself and demonstrates his qualifications. Other sources tell us that Messiah himself not just will be unknown to the masses, but he himself won't know that he's Messiah. Just like Moshe. Moshe didn't know ahead of time that he was destined to save the nation. God tells him, by the burning bush, you're going to save the nation. And he spends a whole week launching multiple objections against this notion. Messiah, likewise, we're told, will be unaware of this task, of this great task before him, ahead of time. One final idea, and that is the name of Messiah. The Talmud lists seven things that were created before the world. They preceded the world. Torah, number one. Repentance, number two. Ganeiden, number three. Gehenom, number four. The throne of God, 
the throne of glory, number five. The holy temple. And finally, Vishmo Shel Mashiach, and the name of Mashiach, the name of Messiah. What does that mean? The name of Messiah? It doesn't say Messiah, it says the name of Messiah. So simply put, it means that his identity, we don't know who he is, his name. How do I find him? What's his name? I don't know. Simply put. The Maharal, as he always does, gives us a very, very deep idea as to what it means, the name of Messiah. People have different names. Why do people have different names? What's the purpose of a name? A name, Maharal tells us, is a differentiator. It differentiates between person A and person B. There's Reuven and there's Shimon. They're two different people. What the name symbolizes is what separates one person from another. Messiah is going to be different. His greatness, his stature, his distinction above other creations is different. And his name, i.e. his differentiator, maybe different differentiators, what makes him distinct and different, that is something which is from a different world. And thus we talk about you know, Messiah, greater than Moshe on some level, greater than Abraham, greater than the angels. That distinction of Messiah, the name, the differentiator of Messiah, Messiah, that is something which is created before the world is created and is unknown to us. Along these lines, the Talmud tells us that there was a whole discussion. Well, what is Messiah's name? And the students of Rab Shila, they said, well, his name was Shila. And the students of Rabbi Yanai said, well, his name is Yanai. And the students of Rabbi Hanina said his name was Hanina. And others say his name was Menachem. All the students of a given sage said, well, I think his name is the same name as their, their teacher. The notion that the students slash followers believe that their Rebbe, their leader is Mashiach, it's not a new one. But there's another idea. Also courtesy of Maharal. Again, a much deeper idea. The students of Rabbi Shila thought it was Rabbi Shila. Rabbi Yanai, Rabbi Hanina. Why? They studied Messiah. And they found incredible qualities of Messiah. And they found those qualities within themselves. And therefore they said, well, maybe I'm the right man. And every sage found in their study of Messiah, the qualities of Messiah that they already had. And therefore they said, well, look, I have the qualities. But perhaps what they did not realize was that Messiah had the qualities of all these sages because he had the qualities of everyone. He's this incredible figure, this superlative figure that encompasses within him all the qualities. And therefore everyone finds his name, i.e. his qualities, in Messiah because, well, Messiah's got that as well. So again, what this tells us is that Messiah is, is this individual, this king that's so completely beyond what we can fathom, even though we have studied a lot about the indications of Messiah, both the Messianic age, the Messianic era, and Messiah himself, it remains hidden. The name of Messiah, the timeline of Messiah, the generation of Messiah, the arrival of Messiah, it's hidden. It's a surprise. And we have to remember 
We don't know. And we feel compelled to try to find out. And it's futile. And yes, today we learned some of the characteristics, some of the indicators of Messiah. But ultimately, we must remember that great people were misled in the past about this subject, and we too can be misled. And I think it's important for us to study some of the previous mistakes that people made in this area. Because in this area, messianic prognostication, being so certain you know who Messiah is, it's an area that's rife for blunders. We have a penchant for making these types of mistakes. As part of the story of Messiah, you recall that Rambam, when he talks about the qualifications of Messiah, he invokes that Rabbi Akiva, greater than any of us will ever become, Rabbi Akiva thought that Bar Kokhba was Messiah. He made a mistake, or on some level he made a mistake. Obviously, Bar Kokhba proved to not be Messiah. But that story is important for us to know. And therefore, what I want to do next, please God, is to explore the sad and unfortunate history of false messiahs and perhaps unrealized messiahs throughout the ages. It's a secret. It's hidden. It's a surprise. And yes, we are told about the indicators of messiah. And it's important for us to know that, obviously. But nevertheless, we will wait and yearn and anticipate for the real messiah to come, please God, speedily in our days. I appreciate your attention. It's great to talk to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.